1: Let me start by telling you a little bit about Du Bois, who I think um, is probably not as well known or remembered today as perhaps he ought to be. He may be the most prolific writer that uh, this country's ever produced. Uh, He was born in 1868. Uh, He took pride in noting that he was born during Radical Reconstruction the same week that Andrew Johnson was impeached. Uh, He died 95 years later as an exile in Ghana, in West Africa, the night before Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. During most of that 95 years, he was writing.
0: W.E.B. Du Bois began his writing career at the age of 12 when he became his town's correspondent for the New York Age, the largest black newspaper in the country at the time. He continued publishing until he died and beyond. His final autobiography was published after his death.
1: So during that 85 plus years of writing, um, he produced three novels, four novels, uh, several classic works of nonfiction. Uh, He edited several newspapers, including The Crisis, the NAACP's uh, monthly magazine, which was sort of his personal broadsheet for the better part of 25 years. He wrote poetry. He published a short book of prayers. He's just an extraordinarily prolific writer. Uh, and I think of all of his work, um, the one that has uh, stands today as really one of the
0: classics of American literature is The Souls of Black Folk. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with James Campbell, a professor of history at Stanford University, to discuss The Souls of Black Folk. The Souls of Black Folk was published in 1903, 40 years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, which officially outlawed slavery in the United States.
1: At one level, one can kind of read it as a status report of what 40 years of freedom have meant. But it's also a response to the particular moment in which he's writing. The period after the Civil War was um, the period that historians know as Reconstruction produced a kind of brief attempt to not only incorporate the formerly enslaved as full citizens to guarantee them equal protection of the laws in the 14th amendment to our constitution, but also to guarantee to black men, the right to vote uh, the 15th amendment to the constitution. And what followed was a brief and remarkable experiment in interracial democracy in which black people voted and served in both state and the United States Congress, uh, sat in constitutional conventions that rewrote the southern state constitutions, in legislatures that created the first public school system in the south that did away with barbarities such as debtor's prison and so forth. But that brief kind of seed time of democratic promise was cut short by what historians know as the process of southern redemption.
0: During Southern Redemption, white people across the South were calling for the return to the way things were before the Civil War. They wanted white supremacy, not interracial democracy. They wanted to remove rights for black people, not expand them. By the time The Souls of Black Folk was published in 1903, the South was in the age of Jim Crow law. These laws enforced the separation of black and white Americans across the United States. Black people were cut off politically, educationally, and socially from the dominant white culture. It is against this backdrop that Du Bois writes The Souls of Black Folk. The book consists of 14 essays with titles like Of the Dawn of Freedom, Of the Meaning of Progress, and Of the Training of Black Men. In the book, Du Bois discusses three main topics, the role of education, the interior lives of black people, and the creation of American culture. The book challenges the materialism of the early 20th century, pushing back against the idea that black people should only be trained in useful crafts, an idea championed by another leading black writer, Booker T. Washington. Washington was a black educator, orator, and political advisor to multiple American presidents. Unlike Du Bois, Washington was born into slavery. He was born on a Virginia plantation in 1856 and freed by the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865. He was nine years old. He taught himself to read, but he had to work, so he wasn't able to attend regular school. Eventually, he managed to enroll in a college in Virginia, but continued to support himself with jobs throughout. Du Bois, on the other hand, was born free in the northern state of Massachusetts. His mother's family owned land, he went to an integrated public high school, and he attended Fisk University in Tennessee. He paid for his schooling with donations from his neighbors. After Fisk, he went to Harvard for a second bachelor's degree and then became the first black person to earn a PhD in history at Harvard. He then studied in Germany at the University of Berlin, where he nearly earned a second doctorate. Washington and Du Bois were both deeply invested in elevating black Americans, but they had lived very different lives. And they had very different visions for how best to achieve their goal. The gravamen of the
1: dispute between Du Bois and Washington I think, was, was partly about competing theories of how race is advance. Washington really had this kind of uh, bottom-up, lift-yourself-by-the-bootstraps that black people would be, for the time being, confined to menial positions. But if they worked hard and applied themselves and didn't allow themselves to worry about things like voting, that somehow they could gradually rise. And as he said in a metaphor characteristic of him and of the age, you know, if a man is worth a dollar, he'll be treated as a dollar. Um, I think Du Bois found that vision appalling, right? What, what does it mean to say that a human being is worth a
0: dollar? Washington was on the side of materialism. He believed that black men couldn't advance through politics or intellectual pursuits, and instead they should dedicate themselves to labor. When he was 25, Washington was selected to be the head of a newly established school for African-Americans called the Tuskegee Institute. The educational philosophy of Tuskegee Institute was to
1: train black people in industrial trades and more broadly in habits of industry, to give a group of people who allegedly had never acquired a work ethic because they'd always worked under compulsion, the kind of internal discipline that they needed to work hard in menial positions. Uh, Du Bois didn't deny that it was useful to train people um, to do necessary work and that people needed useful training and that industrial education was appropriate. But he also believed that races advanced not simply from the ground up, but through visionary leadership, through people, what he called the talented 10th, people who were broadly educated, people who were versed in the kind of accumulated wisdom of civilization, people who understood what he called the technic of civilization. Um, and it was these, this kind of vanguard that pulled a race forward. It's a very elitist kind of point of view that doesn't really translate very well into our age, but I think... Um, in the context of the, the moment, uh, he really worried that Washington was making any access to higher education and therefore any pathways to broad uh, leadership among black people impossible.
0: The differences between their worldviews can be seen in one anecdote from Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery. He tells a story of walking along a southern dirt road and seeing a rundown shack with a yard covered in weeds. And in the weed-strewn yard
1: is a young black man in a pair of greasy overalls reading a French grammar. And for Washington, this is the kind of acme of absurdities. You know, the guy should obviously be repairing his house and mowing the lawn and laundering his clothes, which are all, of course, the skills that you would learn at his Tuskegee Institute. The episode actually tells the story different ways, different times, probably never happened. But it resonated with not only the kind of prevailing white supremacist temper of the time, but with also the kind of materialistic temper of the late 19th and early 20th century. Du Bois in Souls of Black Folk seizes on that, and he he says, one wonders what Plato would have said about that, right? What is absurd about this? What is absurd about a, a black person reading French grammar, speaking French? Um, And so Du Bois kind of joins him on that and makes a claim about uh, partly for purposes of racial leadership, but partly also just, you know, a broader sense of humanity. He says, yeah, you know, it is perfectly appropriate to make carpenters, he says, but the role of education is to make men.
0: Washington focused on the exterior world. He believed that manual labor mattered and that output was the ultimate measure of success. But to Du Bois, the interior lives of black people were more important.
1: One of the controlling metaphors of the book that he introduces at the very beginning is the metaphor of the veil. Uh, That black people are surrounded by a veil. And that veil both occludes to them a vision of a wider society. They see the world through this veil. But it also means that they are invisible or unrecognizable to people outside. So part of what he tries to do is he describes himself as kind of lifting the veil in both senses of that metaphor, right, of trying to help black people to soar beyond the veil and participate in the broader kingdom of culture, but also to lift the veil into the interior life of black people. Du Bois
0: tells a story that addresses both the veil and the purpose of education, a sort of counter story to Washington's tale of seeing the man reading a French grammar. When Du Bois was studying at Fisk University in Tennessee, students were required to teach during the summer. In The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois tells a story about walking through the Tennessee hills until he comes across a place to settle and a family that will house him, and he opens a school. There, he meets a woman named Josie.
1: She had about her a certain fineness, the shadow of an unconscious moral heroism that would willingly give all of life to make life broader, deeper, and fuller for her and hers. I saw much of this family afterwards and grew to love them for their honest efforts to be decent and comfortable and for their knowledge of their own ignorance. But so Josie starts to attend his school and there's so many other kind of immediate demands on her life and yet he sees in her again this kind of yearning for a world beyond the veil in any event, he tells it's quite a beautiful chapter where he talks about um, this young appetite wedded to an edge by school and story and half-awakened thought. These weak wings that beat against the barriers,
0: barriers of caste, of youth, of life. Josie didn't have much access to education, but she had a deep desire to move beyond her circumstances. Du Bois finished his time teaching and returned to Fisk. A decade later, he went back to the little town and found it entirely changed. His schoolhouse was gone. The people were suffering. And Josie had died. My journey was done,
1: and behind me lay hill and dale and life and death. How shall man measure progress there where the dark-faced Josie lies? How many heartfuls of sorrow shall balance a bushel of wheat? How hard a thing is life to the lowly, And yet how human and real and all this life and love and strife and failure is at the twilight of nightfall or the flush of some faint dawning dawn. Thus, sadly musing, I rode to Nashville in the Jim Crow car. How many heartfuls of sorrow shall balance a bushel of wheat? It's hard to imagine a more succinct or eloquent response to the world that Booker T. Washington and his sponsors are offering.
0: You mentioned that part of Du Bois's interest is in black interiority. And could you explain a little bit about um, his concept of
1: double consciousness? The passage in which that comes, in fact, I think is actually more interesting than double consciousness. He's not necessarily referring, it seems to me, in that passage to a vision of black people as kind of culturally divided or hybrid He's making a point about a a kind of nagging self-doubt or self-censoring that happens, or self-consciousness perhaps, that happens in the context of living in a racist society. And let me read you the whole paragraph. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in the American world. A world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity, One ever feels his 2 So that sense, and I think, you know, many African-American people today would still recognize it, of a kind of burden of representativity of knowing that you are being scrutinized, that your actions and statements as an individual are being seen through a haze of racial and racist preconceptions, um, that people aren't seeing you as you. And, and what that does to live with that and to know that you are continually being monitored by that normative white gaze and to know that any of your failings, would very quickly be assimilated into a broader interpretation of the deficiencies of a broader group of people. That, to me, is what he's mostly trying to get at, is that kind of interior experience of, of living in the context of a normative white gaze. The gentle readers to whom he addresses himself in the the forethought of the book, the people to whom he says, I'm going to pull back the veil and allow you to see the interior life of this group of people who you think you know, but you don't. Um, That audience is a white American audience. And I think in its time and to this day, far too few white Americans have read the book or thought about it.
0: The third major point that The Souls of Black Folk makes is about the place of black people in America.
1: One of the qualities that I think defines the human experience is our search for meaning, our search for explanation, and particularly to find some meaning and explanation in the experience of suffering. And during and in the aftermath of slavery, there was an enormous amount of attention and reflection on this problem among African-American people. You know, why would a loving God, a God who allowed no sparrow to fall but by his hand, subject an entire race of people to the agony and humiliation of centuries of enslavement in a foreign land. Uh, Du Bois finds it in a really unlikely way uh, in this notion that somehow, um, even in the context of slavery and humiliation, black and white people were sharing their gifts There's a recognition of what I might call the black whiteness of American society, of the way in which, notwithstanding the horrors of slavery and of Jim Crow exclusion, black people had brought their gifts to American society and created in their relationship with white people a culture unlike any other that existed in the world. The sorrow songs of the slaves, he says, are the only true
0: American music. American culture is not white culture or black culture. It's a combination. And Du Bois urged his readers to recognize the contributions of all races. Du Bois has been a hugely influential figure among black readers.
1: I think one would be really hard-pressed to find any black intellectual, uh, you know, from the time this book was published to the present, um, who didn't read them, who didn't grapple with them, who didn't understand that somehow the task that Du Bois had set for himself of simultaneously um, trying to evoke for a kind of clueless white audience the complexity interiority richness of an african american world and at the same time to hold up to black people a vision of a broader wider kingdom of culture which w- they had every right to i think that that, that, that there's just not a, one would be hard pressed to find any black writer who didn't read him wasn't influenced by him so he, you know, he remains in African American circles and in African American studies courses at places like Stanford. You know, a kind of canonical figure.
0: And what you just said makes me think that um, he does seem to do this interesting balancing act, which is he is a bridge figure between the heights of you know Western cultural achievement in terms of having a German education and and at Harvard PhD. Um, And I think the tendency of some, um, you know, minority groups who go there might be to abandon this like other identity that they have. And he seems to want to recognize the gifts of both. So it does seem like the gift is really a central um, idea that, you know, look, the you know, heritage of Nietzsche and Beethoven, that's, that's yours too. You, you can participate in this, um, but it doesn't mean that Europeans should ignore your gifts as well.
1: So uh, that's a really astute point. I think that uh, one of the things he does in the, in the books, that in the book that's really interesting, each of the chapters begins with two
0: epigrams. Nearly every chapter opens with a poem from a celebrated white poet. But what's fascinating is he, there's a second
1: epigram in each chapter, which is musical. And it's a few bars of one of the sorrow songs of a spiritual. And I think what he's saying is that those two things belong together. That in the pantheon of civilization, these are both great contributions. And in fact, there's been a lot of writing by historians about the particular epigrams that he chose, both in terms of the spirituals and the bellatristic quotations and how he paired them. But the, the, the point, I think, simply that you confront at the beginning of every chapter visually is this notion that there is a civilization, there's a human civilization, and that it, it consists not only of these kind of canonical figures in the Western canon, but it's also that black people have brought that too.
0: Du Bois doesn't only name the gifts that black people have brought to American culture— He shows them. He prints the musical notes of these black spirituals below these quotations from the so-called high culture.
1: And so pairing those, refusing to renounce either of those, you know, so owning the spirituals at a time when many well-educated black people were trying to turn their back on these as echoes of some kind of earlier, more primitive phase in the race's life— Owning those spirituals as precious contributions to human civilization, but also not turning your back on or denying Schiller or Beethoven or all these other kind of, you know, figures in the Western canon. That in fact, to be a whole human, to understand human civilization, for humanity to realize itself, meant acknowledging and owning both of these gifts.
0: It's a beautiful idea. Um, would you, would you connect us, um, to Boyce's thought with? the civil rights movement, and maybe conversations about race that are alive today, how do you see his ideas being taken up by some of these important leaders of these different generations?
1: At one level, I mean, just as Du Bois is kind of the, in some ways, the kind of progenitor inspiration of, of most 20th century black writing, there's a way in which he's also a kind of progenitor or founding father of, you know, the 20th century
0: black freedom struggle. Du Bois was one of the founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. The organization was founded in 1909 to organize for black rights. Du Bois founded the organization's monthly magazine, The Crisis. Throughout his life, Du Bois fought for black people's right to vote, to be educated, and to generally participate in the wider American culture.
1: And in some sense, you know, you see in him at the very beginning of the 20th century all of the aspirations and demands of what we think of as the civil rights movement. Yet his own relationship to that movement was complicated. Part of the problem is uh, he has this pan-African vision that imagines black struggle in the context of a broader anti-colonial struggle of darker races around the world, um, to realize themselves and their own rights to self-determination and not all the not all black leaders, indeed not most black political leaders think that that's a good bet. They're trying very hard to define, you know, many of us allies in the NAACP find that, uh, Idea off-putting that that's we're wasting resources that we should be fighting for our rights here in the United States, and we're not helping by somehow trying to hitch our wagon to some broader anti-colonial politics. His relationship to the what we think of as a kind of classic civil rights movement is also complicated by his increasingly radical politics.
0: Not only did Du Bois believe in a Pan-African vision, he also believed in socialism, which was not a popular viewpoint in America in the mid-twentieth century. This came to a head after World War II.
1: It's a kind of horrific story. He's involved with a thing called the Stockholm Appeal, in which uh, signatories are trying to renounce the use of nuclear weapons. And at a time when the United States had nuclear weapons and other countries didn't, this is seen, and probably in certain senses was, a project of the Soviet Union. And... So he's prosecuted for failing to register as a foreign agent. And uh, the prosecution eventually falls apart, but not before the world sees W.B. Du Bois let off in handcuffs. He loses his passport, eventually has to go to the Supreme Court to have it um, returned. And he is essentially renounced by other black political movements because they
0: can't risk being associated with a red Du Bois had become too radical for the movement he helped to create. After his passport was restored, he left the United States and, in 1961, settled in Ghana.
1: And there's a certain poignancy that uh, he dies, you know, literally on the even of the march on Washington. And Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP, and one of the people who had red baited Du Bois out of the association actually announces the fact of his death uh, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at the March on
0: Washington. Wow, I had no idea about <laughs> about that period. Um, so, mo- moving to today, um, in what way do you think his thought is in continuity with what is... Uh, talked about today, and, and what points do you think there's certain divergences with what we might call critical race studies?
1: There was in the early 2000s, I think, an extraordinary kind of revival of Du Bois studies and courses. I taught some of them at various universities. Uh, you know, it's interesting to sort of wonder why and to note the way in which some of Du Bois's ideas were being picked up and others weren't. So his commitment to Pan-African politics was largely not being picked up. His Marxism was largely not being picked up. His vision of the talented 10th of uh, racial progress coming through the kind of activities of an educated vanguard pulling a race forward was not picked up. I think what was mostly picked up was the idea of double consciousness, and it was— in some ways, in my opinion, misappropriated the sense of dualism uh, became a kind of, for many university-based African American intellectuals, a descriptor of their own uh, personal existential experience of living as black intellectuals in a white world, and so there was a there was an extraordinary rediscovery of the of the work, but it it often. St- Struck me as quite narrow, um, and in some ways often quite refer- self-referential.
0: Could I ask you to say, you know, in as pithy way as you can, um, how did this book, in your view, change the world?
1: At the time Du Bois produces this book, you know, it is what we call too easily the Gilded Age. Uh, it's an era that's marked not only by the Enforcement of violent civic, political, and social ex- racial exclusion, uh, but also by an extraordinarily kind of materialistic temper. I mean, it, it, I guess we'd recognize it because it looks a lot, in some ways, like our own society.
0: We are in Palo Alto right now, after all. Yeah,
1: and you know, Du Bois is basically critiquing not only kind of prevailing notions about you know what. Kind of education or culture should be accessible to black people, but he's also creating an entire culture. It's just, is the body not more than meat? You know, uh, what does it mean to say that if a man is worth a dollar, he'll be treated as a dollar? You know, that there's a wider, fuller, truer life out there. I mean, he uses words like truth and beauty, and he capitalizes them. And so I think you know what what is revelatory about this book is not only its its exposure of an interiority of a of an interior black life not only its of its recovery of the of the true kind of black white roots of american culture but also of its biting critique of a society that had become narrow and crabbed and sordid a dusty desert of dollars in which as he says the negro is the
0: sole oasis i think books like this are often sort of shunted into oh that's like you know the black culture book correct but there's correct. lessons about life correct. and humanity right. that all of us need to read
1: i think that's absolutely right you know that that one of the problems with a book like this and you know so look I am a white historian and I chose a book by a black author and I don't know who else you're getting here, but I bet that's pretty unusual Um, because, you know, we continue to inherit from this horrifying history that Du Bois is evoking here notions about who has access or rights to what culture. And I think Du Bois is trying to explode that. He's basically, you know, there's a wider kingdom of culture to which we are all bringing our gifts, that the spirituals belong alongside Schiller and Beethoven as great contributions to human civilization. And a book like this that is not in any way simply about black life, but is about American society as a whole in a particular historical moment, a book that is explicitly addressed to white readers, uh, this is not a book that we should simply shunt into the kind of African-American history curriculum. This is a book for all of us.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchi. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writlarge is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.